Welcome to Diagram Dialogues, a podcast that explores the forces transforming healthcare across Asia Pacific and the ways in which diagnostics is shaping this future. These episodes will feature leading voices, from innovators and changemakers to patient advocates who are dreaming of a better tomorrow and making it a reality. Hear how they are innovating diagnostics, shaping healthcare, and changing lives. Hi, and welcome to Diagram Dialogues. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. Our guest on the show today is on a mission to revolutionize cervical cancer screening across Asia. Joining me on the podcast today is Professor Marion Savo, Executive Director and Public Officer at VCS Foundation. Marion has served on cervical screening advisory committees in Australia, New Zealand, and Ontario, Canada. Her work focuses on research and implementation projects to demonstrate that it is possible to deliver high-quality cervical screening, even in resource-constrained settings in places like Malaysia, Papua New Guinea, and Samoa. For her significant service to women's health through cervical screening initiatives, she was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia in 2020. Hi, Marion. Welcome to Diagram Dialogues. Hi, Jonathan. Nice to meet you, and thank you for having me. To start, can you tell me a little bit about VCS Foundation, how you got involved, and where the impetus to focus on eliminating cervical cancer came from? Yeah, so VCS Foundation has been around for more than 50 years, and I came on as the executive director in 2000, so a little over 20 years ago. And I'm a cytopathologist by background, and we were basically a pap smear laboratory um, and had started the Victorian uh, Cervical Screening Register. So shortly after starting as executive director, the HPV vaccine came along, and it was pretty obvious to me that the way in which we did cervical screening was going to need to change in the future. So we've been looking um, at HPV testing for quite some time now. Um, working towards the government policy change and and the implementation. Our roots are as a service provider to Victoria for reading pap smears. But now, of course, we've broadened the uh, testing that we do to encompass HPV testing, along with testing for other organisms. Um, And we are working across Australia and around the region, not just in Victoria. So that's why we've changed the name. And we've been interested in the prevention of cervix cancer all along. And I suppose the way in which we do that has changed. And really, HPV uh, screening has given us a lot of opportunities to reach the women we haven't been able to reach in the past with pap smears. So part of your job involves uh, ushering in this new way of doing cervical screening. And central to this is a study called the COMPASS trial. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, the COMPASS trial and the role it plays in the implementation of Australia's National Cervical Screening Program? Sure. The COMPASS trial was initiated, um, well, the pilot in 2013 and the main trial in 2015. And in the main trial now, we've recruited over 76,000 women. And primarily, we're aiming to demonstrate the benefit of HPV-based screening compared with cytology-based screening. Um, Studies like this have been done around the world, but this is the first study to have been done in an extensively um, HPV-vaccinated population um, and was one of the early studies to look at extended um, genotyping. So um, many of the studies didn't have that partial genotyping. The other point about um, the COMPASS study and the other thing that we're very interested in is amongst women who, in whom we detect HPV that is not type 16, 18, we're randomising women to either have cytology um, as the triage test 
or to have the dual stain as the triage test. And we'll be really interested to see um, in this randomised trial what gives the best performance in terms of um, immediate referral to colposcopy with uh, balanced by the number of women needing to go to colposcopy for every high-grade lesion we find. So the trial is multifaceted. It's running ahead of the program change um, in Australia. Its safety monitoring is being used to inform our the safety of our national cervical screening program. And there are so many ways in which it's contributing data to the way in which we think about cervical screening in Australia. Mm, that's wonderful. And I was wondering what are some of the challenges that you have faced in rolling out a new cervical cancer screening program compared to the old way that we do things? Sure. If you're talking about the national program change, I think the change is challenging from everyone, from the community that we're trying to screen to the practitioners, to the laboratories and and governments. And so it's been a really complex change. We've learned a lot of lessons about how to do this. I suppose one of the lessons is that you can't communicate too early or too often with all the stakeholders involved in an established screening program when you're making such a profound change. I think now that we're coming to the end of the fourth year of the new program, things are starting to settle down and people are understanding how HPV primary screening works. But there's always little things that we need to attend to. So you've been working tirelessly to try to raise awareness and promote this program to support screening and also vaccination. So can you share with us why you are so passionate about this and what kind of drives you to you know, improve cervical cancer screening? Well, cervical cancer screening sits in the middle of the WHO elimination strategy. This is a cancer that we know that we can eliminate as a public health problem. And at the World Health Assembly at the end of last year, the WHO uh, agreed on the strategy of screening uh, 70% of the world's age-eligible women, ensuring that we follow up 90% of them, vaccinating 90% of young girls, and making sure that we can treat 90% of women with pre-cancer or cancer. I think we're all motivated by the fact that this is a cancer that impacts women in the prime of their life, where they're important to their families and communities. And it's always hard to, to lose people to cancer, but knowing that it could have been prevented and knowing how unfairly it um, is impacting women who are less well off, who are in um, low and middle income countries, or who are less well served by health systems in high income countries. That's what motivates me. So we all know the importance of having HPV screening and vaccination. And you mentioned that your work does spread across the region, the Asia region and a lot of countries. So can you share with us what is the impact of such diagnostic interventions you want to see on society as a whole? Yeah, so I guess if we see, if we take a country like Malaysia, where I've been working with um, Prof Wu uh, from the University of Malaya, more than half the cancers that she's seen are stage three and four, where the treatment is difficult and the outcomes are likely to be poor. The impact I'd like to see is not only that we um, reduce the the incidence of cancer, but we also reduce the stage at which they're presenting so that they can be effectively treated. That's that's the most important thing. And Malaysia is a country in which there's been um, a PAP program for many decades, but it's very difficult to um, undertake PAP smears 
um, in in a range of settings, and, and we think that the participation rate is somewhere around the 25% mark. That's just not high enough, really, to have an impact at a whole country level. So we think that HPV screening also gives us this opportunity um, for self-collection, which I'm pretty passionate about because it really enables the scale-up of screening and overcomes so many cultural barriers. Mm, so you brought uh, Malaysia as an example, and I do want to bring up um, this project that you're doing called Project Rose, which is, yes. uh, I understand, a program in Malaysia to really improve and moder- modernize the way um, they do cervical screening. So can you tell us about uh, your involvement with this program and how it's going so far? Yeah, so I met Yin Ling, Prof Wu, several years ago now at a meeting, and we got along instantly. We've become not only um, colleagues but close friends. And she had um, she's a gynecologic oncologist at the University of Malaya. She's a dynamite, you know, she gets things done. And she's really um, passionate about, about this cancer. She's Malaysian, born and bred, um, and went to the UK for her um, training in, in, in gynae oncology. And I think because she'd been exposed to cervix cancer in her training, where it wasn't very common in the UK um, and advanced stage disease wasn't very common because of the PAP programs there. I think she was a bit shocked when she came back to KL and and, and saw so many women with advanced disease. So uh, we started with a little pilot in Clinic Kesiatan in conjunction with the ministry, um, and we put together a method of um, participating in screening that involved self-collection for the HPV test, And also we used our registry software, which we put into the cloud and enabled the nurses uh, to access wirelessly from their mobile telephones. And what this combination did is enabled the nurses in Clinic Kassiatan to facilitate the screening of so many more women. The women loved it. We um, surveyed them about acceptability and recommendation to friends and family. Um, And those metrics were way above 90%. The nursing staff loved it because previously taking a pap smear was a very difficult thing to do in these crowded clinics and self-collection is much easier to achieve. And at the time when we did this, it was an early thing to do. We didn't have the pandemic yet, but we started sending the results back to women on their own mobile phones. And we used our registry software to help the staff in Malaysia keep track of the positive results and to keep contacting women until those who had HPV had an appointment for follow-up. So that's been really important. Started off as a pilot. We now have the Rose Foundation, which is a not-for-profit established in Malaysia. I continue as one of the trustees. The rest of the trustees are are from, from KL, from Malaysia. And we are an NGO um, offering these screening services um, funded uh, at the moment by donors. And of course, with the pandemic, that's become a little bit challenging, but I think there is plenty of passion to to push on and and to continue. Mm, That sounds wonderful. And it's encouraging that uh, to hear that it's going well so far. So your work takes you around Asia and different parts of the region. Have you encountered any cultural differences in terms of perhaps willingness to change the way they do screening or are there any barriers in adopting a new approach to diagnostics? I would say that the major cultural barriers I've come across are the barriers related to accessing screening. So for women from a variety of cultural backgrounds, um, the intimate pelvic exam that's required for a traditional pap smear type um, screen 
is just something they can't overcome. And our surveys of Malaysian women, Australian women, Australian refugees and asylum seekers, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, women from across a range of different cultural groups are actually all saying that they find self-collection much more accessible than a traditional pap smear and also that they find it gives them a sense of empowerment and dignity. So I'm pretty excited about this opportunity to reach these groups of women from a variety of cultures and for a variety of reasons that we haven't been able to reach previously. And the change to the program has not been a problem because the women have loved it so much. So Women in Global Health recently released an analysis that found gender bias hinders accurate diagnosis of women. So based on your experience, do you find this to be the case in implementing cervical cancer programs? I think if we had a cancer that killed as many men at the prime of their life in low and middle income countries, we might have got more resourcing by now. So that's a bit of a controversial answer. But clearly, uh, this is a cancer that that affects women and um, women aren't always the decision makers in how resources are allocated across countries. But it's changing. And uh, we are starting to see some really good work and progress. And I think the WHO strategy and the commitment to eliminate this cancer is really helping. And um, I would say having been to lots of meetings um, around the region and particularly in the Pacific Islands um, and in Southeast Asia, that the WHO strategy is aligning our efforts. I think it's improving the prioritisation of cervix cancer by governments. And I think we're going in the right direction. So one proven way that we can uh, counter the rising cost of healthcare is through the adoption of uh, diagnostic interventions. And Australia has been a great example of uh, improving women's health. What do you think makes Australia a great example of this? Australia's had a long commitment, uh, particularly to cervical screening. And I think our health policy decisions are really rooted in the evidence and have been for decades now. So I think I think that's really what it comes down to. So in terms of clinicians, how do you think they can help manage this rising cost of healthcare? And in your opinion, what are some of the limitations to do this and how can that be addressed by the rest of the ecosystem? Knowledge about what tests to order and when is critically important and not overordering tests that might lead to follow-up for things that aren't necessary. I think one of the things that's perhaps not understood about our recent change from pap smears to HPV tests is because the interval has been increased, the overall cost to the budget has will actually go down. There's a cost of change, but now that we've settled into this new program, the cost of the program will not be as much as trying to do a pap smear every two years in women. So it's not very often in medicine that you have a change in technology that delivers better outcomes at a lower price. It almost never happens in cost economic evaluation. Um, And certainly the evaluation that was done um, by the Australian government of making this change was very clear that we would get better outcomes for a lower overall spend. Marion, thank you for your time. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more about Roche Diagnostics and Diagram Dialogues, please visit rochediagram.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.